Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country and we're proud of our country or around the world, wherever you might be. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel and it's just gives me a wonderful opportunity, an exciting opportunity to share thoughts with you. I truly don't have all the answers, and I guess I prove that pretty much every time I open my mouth. And anytime, in fact, I find somebody that purports to have all the answers, I run as fast as I can in the in the other direction and recommend you do the same thing. But we do talk on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray about issues, about things of note of our time. And we have done that, I note. We've, we've had more than 25 shows now of All Rise, so I thought I would take this opportunity, instead of having a guest, which is my norm, to go through the top seven issues that we've discussed, as well as the solutions proposed for them. You know, already we've talked about the court system in some detail, we've talked about commonalities in religion, we've talked about dispute resolution here in All Rise, uh, helping children in Nepal, of all things too, which is, in fact, I still remember, for $250 you can save a life of a child in Nepal really important stuff. We've talked to great organizations for liberty like the Reason Foundation, Institute for Justice, uh, Students for Liberty, the rest. But now we're going to talk about the top seven issues, which I will define as number one, immigration, number two, homelessness issue, number three, our medical services and our facilities there, number four, of critical import uh, educational system. Number five, our policy of drug prohibition and where it's taken us. Six, the foreign wars that we keep continuing to get involved with. Number seven, the biggest security threat to the United States of America today, which is defined as our deficits. And then we're going to give you a bonus as well at the end of that. So I'm going to start with giving some pivotal comments that I think have pretty much controlled all rise and the direction we're going in from three people. Uh, the first is Thomas Sowell, who could spell his name S-O-U-L, in my opinion, a great economist, but it's S-O-W-E-L-L. And he says that the first rule of economics is scarcity. The first rule of economics is scarcity. That is, there's never enough goods and services to supply the demand for them, so there's a scarcity, and we need to re understand that. But the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics, and I think we as intelligent voters and citizens should be aware of that. The second is from Dr. Milton Friedman, truly a hero of mine, who says that we should judge our programs by the results instead of their good intentions. If only we would adopt that approach, both in government as well as just in voters, uh, good intentions don't, don't cut it, judge our our programs by the results, that would be a positive revolution in our country. And you've heard me mention this several times, and stay tuned, I'll mention it a few more. And then there's Henry Ford, again, not my favorite person socially, I think he was anti-Semitic, but said, anyone who believes they can thrive by relying on the government should talk to the American Indian. And that pretty much says it all, that they're almost always at the bottom level of any socioeconomic discussion that takes place, and look at what the Bureau of Indian Affairs has done for them. By the way, I think that 
that should that bureau should be abolished and everyone would be better off. The uh, Native Americans refer to the to the Bureau of Indian Affairs BIA as bossing Indians around, and uh, I think pretty much that's where we've gone. So let's talk about the first one: the liberty of immigration. And in my view, as a libertarian, people should have the liberty to travel. In fact, tangentially, I don't feel that the United States government should be able to control where I, as a citizen of this country, travel. I think I should be able to travel pretty much wherever I want to, but that's a separate issue. But I was so blessed. So were we all, those of us that were born in the United States of America. Through no fault of mine, I became an American citizen. I think that other people around the world should be able to do the same thing. They should be able to get a work visa, and if you can pursue the American dream, if you can support yourself here, you should be able to come here and be able to do that. Uh, we'd give you we can call it an orange card if you want, and you could use that after you'd have some form of background investigation for such thing as mental health issues or criminal justice issues or even terrorist sympathies and diseases, whatever. But if you can pursue the American dream, you should be able to come here and do that. And if you can support your family, you should be able to do that too. However, clearly important, no welfare is attached to that, except maybe for true emergency situations, or certainly to allow your children to get an education. It's in a public policy interest for that to occur as well. And all importantly, you would be able to have an identity card that could not be counterfeited, probably from the iris in your eyes or your fingerprints somehow so that you could make sure that that was not a counterfeitable card. And then you'd have to punish employers that would hire anybody that did not have that card. If that were to occur, we would then be able to normalize these relations. You'd have people be able to go back and forth across the borders, sometimes go home, see their families and come back again. In many ways, of course, in what we do today, we imprison people here because it's so expensive, so dangerous to try to go back and forth that we actually keep them here much more than they would like to. But no welfare. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that really this whole idea of uh, if you're born in the United States, the birthright, we should take a re-examination of that because for some reason, the founders of the 14th Amendment did not anticipate the airplane. What do I mean by that well, if you're going to fly from Mexico City to Toronto and happen to have a stopover in St. Louis and a child is born, uh, that would mean, according to readings of the 14th Amendment, that child would be an American citizen. I, I think that's just silly, but that's a little bit off the subject as well. But if you recognize this immigration system allowing liberty, allowing people to roll up their sleeves and actually profit from their labors, understand this one, that work will go to either work will come to capital, the jobs will come to where the businesses are and the jobs are, or the capital will go to the work, namely the jobs will go to the to the workers. So it's much more productive in the United States of America to have the jobs here, to manufacture here, to get the jobs done here, than it would be for the capital to go to other countries and have that occur. So this is where we should go with regard to immigration as far as I'm concerned. All importantly, allow people to come here. They, they self-select. Most immigrants come here wanting to pursue the American dream. They don't want to go on to welfare, but they do have that attraction. And, and we need to break that cycle so that if you're going to come here to work, you're welcome to. Otherwise, you'll probably have to go elsewhere. And I think that, that would we don't need walls. We would have just those inner barriers and inner incentives that this would get things done. That's what we believe on all rise as to immigration. What about homelessness? You know, I've got to tell you, in the libertarian philosophy, I think, 
rides with this, that if someone were bleeding on the street, or if I were bleeding on the street, right there, right by your feet, you would have no legal obligation to help me unless you help cause my injuries. That would be different. But we will because we want to, because we're compassionate people. But we don't owe people a living just because they're alive, but we are compassionate. As far as homelessness is concerned, the same thing applies, that I think there should be a level in our country voluntarily below which people should not be allowed to fall. So what I would do on this, and a lot of it I got from Governor Gary Johnson when I was running for vice president. He was our candidate for president as a libertarian in 2012. But what what we should do here is, and it comes from Milton Friedman as well, is to have a change in our tax structure. Give me a couple of minutes here. I'll come to homelessness at the end. But for example, with these numbers used as, as illustrations, we could adjust them up or down as we fit decided appropriate, no one in our country would pay any income tax on their first $30,000 of uh, earnings or earnings or capital gains or whatever. Any money that you received would be counted in that. No one, not you, me, Bill Gates, no one would pay any income tax on their first $30,000 of earnings. Then for every dollar you make between $30,000 and $100,000, you'd pay, for example, 10 cents of those dollars to the government. I don't care how you spend your money. And then for if you're lucky and make between 100 and 500,000, you'd pay say 15 cents of each of those dollars to the government. And if you made more than $500,000 a year, you'd pay 20 cents of each of those dollars to the government. End of discussion. Imagine the being able to work for business for for business reasons instead of tax reasons. The amount of money that we would save in keeping tax records and the fraud and the bureaucracy and everything else. So that would go for that. And by the way, we could tell if if the government were going to increase our taxes, we could see it was raised from 15 cents to 16. Or if for heaven's sake, it is possible, they would lower our taxes, it would go from 15 cents to 14 and it would be easily discernible. So what about people that make no money? And I don't care if they're lazy, they just lost their job to a robot, or, or they're going to go back to school or start their own business. I would give them a stipend of $15,000 a year. Again, Milton Friedman came up with this. He called it a negative income tax. I don't like the word negative, so I would use a stipend. But nonetheless, probably broken into 12 monthly payments of $1,250 a month. Then, what if you're homeless? Or, excuse me, then for every dollar that you would earn between zero and $30,000, you'd lose 50 cents of your stipend. So you'd always have an incentive to work to earn the extra dollar, which is tragically missing today with regard to our welfare system. Many people find that if they work, they're going to actually end up with fewer resources than if they go on the dole. So that is a major thing that needs to be changed. Now, so again, I don't care if you're lazy or whatever, that's what we would do. Now, we get to the homeless situation. Hey, I promised you we would. So if you were to have somebody that's homeless, and they would have $1,250 in the equivalent of an ATM account every month, the private sector would pretty quickly come up with some form of dormitory style living, board room and care, that sort of thing for say $1,000 a month, uh, and then it would leave you another $250 to buy your toiletries or, or, or whatever. Uh, the private market would then take this over because it's really a terrible thing, in my opinion, to see these people that are homeless. Now, you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, but what if they're going to be drug addicted and they're going to use all that money to buy drugs and then still be homeless or they have a gambling problem or, or whatever? That, if 
Milton Friedman said this right as well, that look, the difference between the wealthy and the poor is the poor don't have any money, so give them some money. And if they're going to have this addiction or they'll be irresponsible, they need a conservatorship. That's a different question, which of course it is. So separate the people that have these disabilities or don't, and then uh, be able to, to adjust accordingly using the free market instead of government. That now we see with the homeless issue, all of a sudden it goes so up and down that one government or another is going to give millions of dollars for this or million dollars, but it, it comes and goes. This one would be approached that would be continual and it would be effective because the private sector would be in charge. So that's where we would be. And in fact, we would have that institutional response. Liberty, again, is the key to doing that and as well as the compassion. So let's talk about medical services now for a moment. We have seen, gosh, in my when I was growing up, and I'm probably older than many people listening here, but but it was never even a question of do we have enough emergency rooms? Uh, did we have a, a benefit of good medical services for reasonable prices? Because the government was not involved. In fact, I was growing up, as I understand it, when I was in the first grade, I had a kidney infection and, and uh, uh, I had blood in my urine and the rest. And fortunately, they'd come up with these new medications for uh, antibiotics and probably saved my life, penicillin, as I understand it. And I had my medical doctor would come to our house and give me that injection of penicillin. So we didn't have these problems. But then as the government has gotten more and more involved in our health care, the prices have gone up and the service has been more problematic. Why? Because now the only thing really that is variable with regard to what the government is doing to approach our medical system is the reimbursements to the professionals. So uh, it, just feature this. You know, I am fortunate. I have a pension. I'm on Medicare. I have uh, Anthem Blue Cross as a private insurer as backup now. And if I were to go to a medical doctor and say, Doc, I've got a knee problem. The doctor would say, well, Jim, what do you think? You want an MRI? What's going to go through my mind today? Well, let's see. My co-pays, it probably cost me about $30. Sure, why not? I might as well have the best. I'm paying all of this money. I might as well have the best. So I'd get the, the, uh, the MRI. Now, if I were spending my own money, say in a medical savings account, which is where we should go, most people in our country, let's say 70% of the people, 65, whatever it is, cannot take care of their own health care needs. So get the government out of it, except that require all of us that can, say to put $5,000 a year at the beginning of each year into a medical savings account, the equivalent of an ATM. So then what's going to happen? I'm going to use some of that money to buy catastrophic insur medical insurance of, say, a policy of above $4,000. Most people in our country do not spend $4,000 a year on their own medical needs until toward the end of their life or unless they have special needs. So get the government out of it. Now, same example. If I go see the medical doctor, he says, Jim, you want an MRI for your knee? What's going to go through my mind? Because now I'm spending my own money. Well, I don't know, doc. What's it going to show me and how much is it going to cost? If you or I ask that question today under these circumstances, the doctors don't even know. That question is not asked. As a result, all of these medical procedures get more expensive because the payer is not the consumer. But if you're spending your own money, now you're going to get value for the monies that you spend. The prices will come down, the competition will get larger, and we will be able to have enough medical professionals that will actually come back into the profession because they are paid what they are worth. Today, we 
quibble on that. Lots of doctors, you know, don't take Medicare. In fact, they're going into what's called concierge medicine, so they actually go into a private service, get away from any of this tax stuff because they're a bunch of shenanigans, a bunch of bureaucracy. Ask it this way. I know I'm on a roll here, maybe talking a little too much on this, but I believe it, and I think you will too if you think about it. If you want the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles to run your healthcare needs, that's where we're going. And Healthcare is expensive, of course, but you think it's going to be less expensive when you add those tons of bureaucrats into this whole involvement? Get the bureaucrats out, have people pay their own medical care and their own medical needs, and again, it will be less expensive, more competitive, and more realistic. By the way, we will also, again, become partners in our own healthcare. Now you ask, what about people that cannot take care of themselves? Good question. I would provide vouchers for these people based upon their financial situation on a sliding scale. So if they made no money, they would have vouchers to make in effect that buy that $1,000 of, of catastrophic coverage and use the other $4,000 for their co-pays or, or whatever that would be. So provide those vouchers and then again, the private sector will take over with all of those benefits. We don't have to, but this would be a compassionate thing that we would do voluntarily to provide those vouchers. And as a practical matter, if you say, oh, we should repeal Obamacare translation, you don't care about me. We have to have a substitute. This is a viable substitute that will be effective. It will work, and it shows people that we do care. I have a very good friend who's a pediatrician who about five or six years ago came home to his wife and said, next year I'm going to retire. Well, this was December. She asked the logical question, what do you mean next month or a year from next month? And he said, no, next month. I'm just fed up with having the government oversee my practice of medicine. It just isn't working. And so many medical professionals have gotten out of the field because of this government meddling. So many other qualified people have not gone into this field. Why should I go to medical school and have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and not be able to get a reasonable living for my professional services? because of this situation. The bureaucracy is winning and the professionals and we as consumers are not. This is untenable and we have to change this. By the way, on the 3rd of May of this year, 2019, Dr. Clark Smith, who was a longtime friend of mine, a medical doctor, a general practitioner, was on our show talking about medical savings accounts here on All Rise. If you're interested in a little more depth of this, and actually from a medical professional instead of a retired judge, listen to Dr. Clark Smith from the 3rd of May, 2019. Moving on, education. Look, what could be a more critical issue? We've covered this on All Rise before. This is just kind of a recap, but the educational system, probably one of the most critical issues that we as a country are facing. So we have to ask ourselves a threshold question. What is the purpose of our educational system? Ask yourself, what is the purpose of our educational system? On the one hand, to educate our children, what a concept. Or on the other hand, to protect below average teachers. And guess what we're doing today with disastrous results. We need to bring competition, I would say, back into our educational system. What do I mean by that? By allowing, empowering the parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent for the education of their children. And they will choose 
excellence. In fact, they will demand excellence. And by and large, if you empower those parents to choose where that government money is going to be spent, they will receive excellence. Now, as you, many of you know, I ran for vice president as a libertarian uh, in 2012 as a libertarian uh, with Governor Gary Johnson as our candidate for president. And I found myself to my, it was kind of embarrassing. I was discussing this whole concept of school vouchers or educational choice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And pretty soon people were kind of waving their fingers at me saying, well, no, wait a minute, Judge Gray, uh, we don't we don't have that problem because we have had school choice in Milwaukee now for numbers of years and we don't have any bad schools. Either the bad schools got better because of competition or they were taken over by others that would do it better. We don't have any bad schools in Milwaukee anymore. So school choice allows people to choose. Now, look at a private school today. And you will see that it does not have nearly the amount of administrators as a public school does. Now, if I'm a good teacher in a public school, I'm not dumb. And I know, hey, where's most of the money for, for salaries? It's in administration. So the better teachers gravitate out of the classroom and go into administration where they're, most of the schools are top heavy with administrators. You don't see that where people are responsive in, 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 in the private school system clearly important. Now, what about people with special needs? Because that certainly is going to be more expensive. I went on an ACLU website recently because you're thinking, wait a minute, where are the most of the failing public schools in our country? They're in areas that are the lower economic areas, usually, regretfully, at least for the moment, uh, a lot made up of, of people of color, Hispanics, African-Americans, whatever. That's where our schools are failing our children. I had school choice when I started working. I moved to Irvine in California. Why? Among other things, they have good schools. And we. so I chose to go to a place where they had good public schools. Or later on, when I moved to Newport Beach, we raised our child and sent him to a private school. So I had that choice. I had that choice all, in, all importantly. So why then is it not considered to be essential to have school choice to empower parents in the lower economic areas. This is something in my view that if we're failing our public schools, mostly in lower economic areas, we are damning them in effect for the rest of their lives to, to not be able to live up to their potential shame on us. So why aren't groups like the NAACP or MALDEF or the ACLU championing the whole idea of empowering the parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent. And I saw on that ACLU website, one problem was special needs children. And that's a legitimate area. I think truly we should empower a greater amount of money for the parents of special needs children to be able to be spent at this at the various school. And another one was, oh, wait a minute, because there's a lot of discrimination in hiring teachers that are in the LGBTQ community, you know, and, and that's probably true. There may be some discrimination there, and that's something we should all work on. But look, if you're going to choose between focusing on a small segment there, all importantly and still and certainly something we should focus on, as opposed to failing hundreds of thousands of school children around our country, you know, sometimes we need to make some choices. We need to change that. And I am entreating the people who work for those wonderful organizations, NAACP, ACLU, MALDEF, many others, to get on board with empowering parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent.
So who were the winners? The winners would be good teachers. They'd be in demand. And if I was had a good teacher at my school that wasn't paying compensating enough or put restrictive behavior on, you and a neighboring school district would probably hire him or her over to your school. So competition would work there as well. And who are the losers? Well, the teachers that can't teach. And to bring that issue home to you broadly, recently, Last year in New York City, as I understand it, they spent tens of millions of dollars to pay teachers not to teach. Either they had administrative disciplinary problems or they were just poor teachers, but they couldn't be fired. But none of the other principals in the surrounding areas wanted them. So they were literally paid. They would go into a gymnasium or places like that. They'd play cards. They'd read books. They'd talk with each other and be paid full salary to not teach. That is an extreme that simply does exist, and we as citizens, caring professionals, caring citizens of this country, we simply must get away from that system. We had Robert Enslow, who was the executive director of Ed Choice, which had taken over from the Milton Friedman Foundation, uh, on August the 2nd on here on All Rise, talking about educational choice, talking about all of these issues. If you're interested in getting a little more detail, I thought it was a wonderful in interview that Robert Robert Enslow gave to us on look on click on uh, on demand uh, August the 2nd of 2019 and hear more information about education. We've got to bring educational competition back to our schools. So for example, if the parents decided that their child really wasn't meant to be an economist or a doctor of philosophy, they really wanted to get some job skills and go to some form of vocational school, who better to make that decision, the parents or the government? Allow that government money to be spent for a vocational school. It's working famously well in Germany. It will work in the United States as well. Everyone will gain except the teachers' unions and poor teachers, that we've got to get away from this situation. So now we've gone through four of the top seven issues on here on this edition of All Rise. We're going to hear these words and then come back and hear the other three plus a bonus issue. So stay tuned. We'll talk again after this messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com We are Americans all. 
are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And I know you heard those messages. You know, I... Consider libertarian, you know, in fact, do yourself a favor and go to the website of www.isidewith.com, the letter I-S-I-D-E-W-I-T-H.com, and take that test and you'll see where you fit on the political spectrum. I think you'll be amazed at how libertarian you are. We have now had more than 25 shows here on All Rise. This is kind of a recap where we've gone through immigration, homelessness, the medical services, and education. Now I'd like to go through another three of the final seven topics, drug prohibition, foreign wars, and the biggest security threat we face, which are our deficit, plus, as promised, a bonus issue. But first, I'd like, in accordance with what my wife had requested me, to get into a little silliness on this show, and I usually do it just right here after the break. This one actually came from a retired stewardess for Southwest Airlines, and she said on occasion when she was a stewardess that the 737s that they would have would hit the hit the pavement kind of hard, hit the runway a little hard, and if there was that real jolt, and she'd look in the first couple of rows of traffic, and if the, uh, excuse me, rows of, of passengers, and if they had their chins down on their chest like, oh my goodness, she'd get on the microphone and she'd say, well, I, we understand that we hit the runway kind of hard, but folks, I want you to understand that this was not the crew's fault. And it wasn't the plane's fault, it was the asphalt. So again, that sounds pretty Southwest Airlines to me, but that's what she said, and I'd pass it along to you, trying to keep my wife uh, uh, happy with a little silliness. To go back to the fifth issue, which is drug prohibition, on I had been a federal prosecutor in the United States Attorney's Office uh, in Los Angeles. Before that, I was a criminal defense attorney as Navy JAG Corps. Uh, and then by this time, I'd been a judge for nine years in the trial courts of Orange County, California. And I did something extremely unusual for a trial court judge. On April the 8th of 1992, I held a press conference. And judges do not do that. And I told anyone that would listen that our nation's policy of drug prohibition simply was not working. And who better than someone like me, a pretty conservative judge in a conservative county, never used any form of illicit substances. At least people would have to listen to the message. And I was able to do that. Parenthetically, I always remember that it was April the 8th because I had a law in motion calendar on my civil court on Wednesdays. And so I prepared the day the Tuesday night before so I took that Wednesday morning off before I had my lawn motion arguments at 1:30 and so I was ready by the 1st of April of 1992 and then I thought to myself well doing this on April Fool's Day would probably not be a good idea so I waited a week so that's how I always remember what the date was but at any rate I've been talking about this ever since and if you look at the problems and these are outlined which is clear that some of these mind altering sometimes addicting substances can be habit-forming, they can be addicting, they certainly can result in, in some physiological problems. I happen to believe that the methamphetamines are some of the worst things that had ever been visited upon mankind. I also happen to believe that if you happen to be schizophrenic, that smoking marijuana can cause some, some rather substantial problems for you as well. So they, they certainly, without trying to limit or 
or minimize the damages that some of these mind-altering drugs can, can, can bestow, in fact, including mine, which is alcohol, which is a lot more dangerous in many ways than marijuana ever will be. But, but it, that's about 10% of our nation's drug problems. The other 90% are caused by drug money. And if you just think of that, look at these problems in Mexico or typically for a long time within Colombia or Afghanistan, they have nothing to do with, with the drugs themselves. All of this crime, this corruption, this, the beheadings have nothing to do with drugs at all. It's all drug money that causes those. So we simply need to come down and realize that is going on. We also had on the 9th of August of, of this year, 2019, of the present chair of the Libertarian Party, Nick Sarwark, who for a while was a public defender in Colorado. And he, in his interview, made the comment that, look, he'd been representing numbers of people that had used various drugs, that had methamphetamine, or even sold them, and that never did anybody really find a, a, their life better because they were using these drugs, but to spend 30 days, three years, or to, 20 years in jail or prison for them, that didn't help their lives either, and it just took a whole lot of taxpayer money without really accomplishing anything beneficial unless you happen to work for the prison guards union. So listen to, to his insights if you want. Another, one of the earliest uh, inter- guests that I had on All Rise was a fellow named Neil Franklin, who is the executive director of what used to be called Law Enforcement Against prohibition is now evolved into being called law enforcement action partnership because it's not only laws of drug prohibition but they all dovetail into the bail reform and to mental health issues and homelessness and the rest so it's it's law enforcement action partnership but he was our guest on april 26 if you really want to get into a variety of approaches that will actually be successful with regard to our nation's drug problems listen in on neil franklin's uh, show on April the 26th. But if you think about it, the libertarian approach is, of course, it makes as much sense to me or us to put Robert Downey Jr., for example, in jail for his heroin problem. And he's typically had that problem. He's doing pretty well now, as I understand it. He'll have to be careful. He'll always kind of have that craving. But it makes as much sense to put Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. It's the same thing. It's a medical issue. Bring people closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of labeling them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. But, and here is the key, if Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, you or I drive a motor vehicle, for example, impaired by, you name it, methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, alcohol, again, my drug of choice, that's a crime and should be critically important. What's the difference? Well, if I'm driving a motor vehicle impaired by these various substances, now I'm putting your safety at risk, legitimate criminal justice issue. But you and I, as long as we're 21 years of age or older, could go home tonight and drink 10 martinis if we wanted to, not a violation of law unless we drive impaired, but it's a matter of liberty. So bring me closer to the medical professionals that can help me. But otherwise, it makes as much sense to me to put that the government decide what I put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. It's none of the government's business. So again, liberty is consistent with practicality, which is consistent with better results than putting using the criminal justice system to protect us from ourselves. I've been in the criminal justice system almost all of my professional life, and you understand the criminal justice system is really designed for and effective at protecting us from each other. 
but it is not designed for and is woefully inadequate in protecting us from ourselves. So let's recognize that, get away from that sort of activity, and then use those resources to address issues like robbery, rape, and murder that are now in many ways under represented because we're using all of this money to try to investigate, prosecute, and incarcerate nonviolent drug offenders. So these are things that we just need to listen to. Now, on a different schedule, on on July 19 of 2019, we had a fellow on this program named Scott Horton who had written a book called A Fool's Errand, which talked about us having been lured into fighting in Afghanistan by Osama bin Laden, which, by the way, he says, and he documented his book rather substantially, we lured the Soviet Union into Afghanistan to give them their own Vietnam, in effect, in a similar fashion. And Scott Horton said, of course, for a while, we had the DEA going into Afghanistan to try to eradicate those opium poppies that are used to make uh, heroin. And it almost upset the entire economy of Afghanistan, so we simply called off the DEA from doing that. And then Scott Horton told us on his show that he actually had the amazing, ironic result of United States Marines protecting the opium fields of a high-ranking Afghan government official who was in the drug business, but we needed his help on other issues, so we had the Marines guarding the opium. That's what government ends up doing for us. We've also on this show had Mike Farrell, who was, you know, as you may remember, uh, B.J. Honeycutt on MASH, but now is also involved heavily in trying to, to repeal the death penalty. He was on all rise on May 31st of this night year 2019. You might want to listen to that as well. All connected to drug prohibition. You know, we kept increasing the penalties. You know, the the Controlled Substances Act in the Nixon administration. Well, if five years mandatory minimum jail isn't enough to to transact to stop the transaction of illegal drugs, let's make it ten years. Let's make it fifteen. Let's make it the death penalty. It's not effective. And Mike Farrell was talking about this. And then on a totally different perspective, uh, as far as drug prohibition has really inflicted a crime upon us all since probably the the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937 because it has stopped research into cannabis. And we had Dr. Greg Smith on our show here on All Rise on on July 12th, and he talked about CBD oil, which is and will be a medical revolution, positive revolution in our country. But we're only beginning to investigate it now because it was prohibited for many years under the federal laws of drug prohibition. We lead the world in the incarceration of our people. The United States of America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners, largely caused by our failed policy of drug prohibition. So ever since April the 8th of 1992, I've been speaking publicly about this, and now I say that it's the biggest failed policy in the history of the United States of America, second only to slavery, and I, and I believe that. We must repeal drug prohibition, regulate and control it, tax it, and bring these drugs, dangerous as they can be, under the control of medical professionals instead of having them being used by by uh, cartels and selling it by cartels and uh, juvenile street gangs. We couldn't do it worse if we tried. So we've talked about this and we will continue to talk about this on All Rise. Issue number six, the foreign wars. 
my goodness, the most critical issue in the Constitution, other than liberty, which again is the most important according to all the delegates there, was in Article 1, Section 8, where we will not go to war unless Congress declares war. It is a matter of our Constitution, and it is not the same as these various war powers acts like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed by Congress to allow then uh, President Lyndon Johnson to go into Vietnam or any of these other various war powers acts to allow, for example, President George W. Bush to go into Iraq, etc. No, the answer is libertarians would require a declaration of war from Congress. Now, if that were to happen, what would occur? Well, number one, we would find out by voting who is the enemy. Who is it that we are going to declare war against? What is the security threat to our country, to our security's national interests, uh, in order to be able to define that? What are our interests? How will we know when we succeeded our goals so that we can have an exit strategy? On May 24th of this year, 2019, our former Congressman Tom Campbell uh, talked about his time in Congress, five-term member of Congress from Northern California, and that was during the Bill Clinton era when he went into Kosovo. And Tom Campbell at that time introduced two resolutions, either number one, to declare war on keep in Kosovo, or number two, to withdraw. And he was approached by leaders from both the Democratic and the Republican Party, as he told us here on All Rise, saying, oh, let Clinton have his war. You know, we had Vietnam before, and by the way, if the war goes well, we'll get the credit for it, and if he doesn't go well, he'll get the blame. Now, my goodness, talk about a treasonous thought. We're going to have people die. We're going to have our, our soldiers and, and combat action people go into harm's way so that the politicians can either blame the other side or credit themselves. No. Go back to Scott Horton again, who was on the 19th of July as an author of his book, uh, saying, look, this is how we got into Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and by the way, then our veterans will go into harm's way with shell shock or whatever it's now called PTSD, where we had Antoinette Balta, who was the executive director of the Veterans Legal Institute. She was on our show on June the 14th, talking about all of the problems that the veterans bring home with them. Kind of the lucky ones are the ones that have physical injuries because they can be identified, but the mental issues really are not being addressed nearly well enough by our government shame on us. So we need to bring in third-party voices into these decisions about whether we go into war or not. And third-party voices, we had Nick, Sa Nick uh, Sarwark again, who was the chair of the Libertarian Party, but he was also running for mayor of Phoenix, and he said something on our show extremely revealing. On the 9th of August, he was interviewed and said, look, when he was running for mayor of Phoenix, there were something like 17 debates, and on the, eight, on the 17th, he participated in the first 16, but he was not able to make the 17th because he had another speaking obligation, and they told him, oh, the other two candidates had a free time there because there wasn't that third voice raising issues that they didn't want to address, and they didn't. And it's the same thing with regard to our elections for 
for a United States president, etc. There's some issues they do not want to decide, and so or at least to discuss. But you have a third party voice in there. They would discuss this. We had Bruce Fine on this show, who has brought our lawsuit against the Commission on Presidential Debates. He was talking with us on May the 30 on May, excuse me, June 21st, talking about the importance of bringing other voices into the congressional debates, the senatorial debates, and certainly the presidential debates. So now what are we facing? Are we going to go to war with Iran? For heaven's sake, it's being discussed. The answer is no. We'll bring in the declaration of war to do that. And I'm pretty convinced that if you make people take a position on a vote as to what we're going to do, at least if we do support that war, which I clearly hope we do not, but the country will support it if, in fact, it's been declared. That probably would have happened in Vietnam, would have happened in Iraq, where it was terribly unpopular wars because we didn't invoke the Constitution. Huge issue. Libertarian values would promote the the responsibility required by voting for a war clearly important thing that has been abrogated by that responsibility. So that's issue number six, critically important. As number seven, at the moment, I am the chair of the World Affairs Council of Orange County, where we bring in speakers talking about international issues. And one of them was an ambassador, John Negroponte, who'd been an ambassador to Honduras, to the Philippine Islands, to Mexico, been involved heavily with the State Department, the U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations under George W. Bush, etc. And he made these presentations, taking us around the world and talking about foreign events. And then the first question, because we don't bring in speakers unless they'll agree to answer various questions. He was asked, Mr. Ambassador, what is the biggest security threat to the United States today? And without blinking an eye, he said, it's the deficit. Now we are going into more than $1 trillion budget deficits each year in our country. You know, the spending cap is a false issue. Just don't spend the money, but don't play these games as to pushing up the spending cap, etc. Maybe we should introduce a balanced budget amendment. You do that in your household. We do that in our household. The states actually have to do that because they can't print money at least in theory, but the federal government simply prints money and we we go to, in fact, we went to war in Iraq on a credit card that we're still paying for. So it's a huge security issue. Now, I understand that financially I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I and uh, people of my generation mostly are doing pretty well. I have a pension. I have some investments. Our house is paid for, etc. I'm doing okay. My children are at risk, and my grandchildren, if I ever get any, are bankrupt because politicians kick that can down the road. Oh, we'll spend all this money now and we won't worry about what's going to happen with regard to the deficits later. But if you're a young person and you're not involved politically before time is out, you're going to wish you had been because it's going to be accountable to you. You are bankrupt because we have all of these obligations that we don't have any funding for. Libertarians would say, okay, you're not going to vote for funding for anything unless you designate where the money is going to come from. That's what we do in our own budgets at home, that's what we should do in government as well. We cannot get involved with this. Politicians, it's innate in the system, don't care about the future. They don't care about the future. They only care about the next election. And that's a problem. It's inherent. I'm not labeling them individually because of that, but they kick that can down the road. They kick our nation's 
future down the road. They don't worry about it now. If they did, they would stand up waving their fists saying, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to stop this deficit because it is the biggest security threat to our country. Ask Ambassador Negroponte. So, in fact, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and I've mentioned this, said that the biggest uh, biggest issue for government is controlling our liberties, protecting our liberties from the encroachment of government. Only the second most important is our security, keeping us safe. And that one is a financial issue that we're only as strong as our economy. And if we keep borrowing this money like this, kicking that can down the road, we're truly going to wish we had not. So, well, I've now gone through the top seven issues, and as promised, I'm going to give you a bonus issue. And here, in effect, we at the United States of America are out of step with the rest of the world. And it was Bob Dylan who said, quoted, you're either busy being born or busy dying. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we should show ourselves and we should show the world that we're still busy being born, which in some ways means that we should go to the metric system. It is inherent in the system we inherited from the from the Great Britain, the imperial system. Even Great Britain is now off that, except they use miles instead of kilometers. But my goodness sake, if you look at what we're using today, and there are almost no other countries around the world. I think this Sudan is still on the imperial system and maybe one other country, but we should rejoin the rest of the world. How could you possibly say that it makes any sense whatsoever to have water freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or to boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit? How could you possibly say it makes any sense whatsoever to have 5,280 feet in a mile or 12 inches in a foot? It just doesn't compute. Why is a ton 2,000 pounds? I mean, it just, again, we can go through a lot of this uh, all the way around. Uh, What, by the way, and I've never known this, what is the size of a hectare of land? Uh, How much is a bushel of wheat? So other countries in the world have said, universally speak in English, but measure in metrics. And they're right. And if you don't go back into history, you will see that the whole metric system was born actually with the French Revolution in around 1790 or so, because they had all of these conflicting systems of measurement and farmers couldn't quite share. They couldn't understand how much grain they were giving up for what, for how mounted cows or whatever. And so it basically spread and it's based upon actually one meter of measurement is one ten millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole. So at least it's based with the Earth. One ten millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole. And if you get into it further, it just makes so much sense. One calorie is the amount of energy that it takes to to raise the temperature of one cubic centimeter of water one degree Celsius. And of course, you know, Celsius, zero degrees is freezing, 100 degrees is is boiling. So all of this just makes a great deal of sense. How should we get into this? Well, I think we should propose, again, we're busy being born instead of dying. We should propose to start teaching the metric system K through 12 right away. And then the rest of it, you kind of phase in over time. That At the moment, we could say, well, you know, this sack of potatoes is so many ounces, parentheses, so many uh, kilograms or whatever, 
pounds, kilograms. And then eventually over time, we'll reverse it saying this pack of potatoes has so many kilograms, parentheses in smaller print, so many pounds. And get away from that such that we will be able to phase in over time. My wonderful wife is from Canada and she said, you know, during the 1970s, they transitioned from the imperial system in Canada to the metric system. That's the way they did it. And even her parents, you know, within a couple of years were just conversant, just just speaking about this all the way around. It can happen. We don't we use this now in track and field. We don't use the hundred yard dash. We use the hundred meter dash for heaven's sake. Our medical industry, they don't use quarts and pints, they use liters and milliliters. And by the way, if you think of it this way, a half a liter is more than a pint, so you get more beer if we're in a metric system. So that's kind of my overview of what we're doing here on All Rise. We're trying to discuss issues. This is kind of a recap. By no means am I an expert in many of these things, but I listen. I try to discuss. Please do the same thing. And if you're interested, by the way, for the last three years, I have written something called Two Paragraphs for Liberty, where I contrast what the free market would do, people uh, acting in their own economic self-interest or social interest would do, as opposed to the governmental approach. It's called Two Paragraphs for Liberty. If you'd like to get a copy of this and be on the mailing list every Monday, please uh, seek me out at judgejimgray.com. Gray is, of course, G-R-A-Y, judgejimgray.com, and I'd be happy to include you on this. Feedback is important. We need to discuss these issues. In fact, there should be no reason why we as an intelligent, caring society should not be able to discuss anything. We're getting so polarized that, in fact, the word is now if you're in politics or in government, if you say I'm going to compromise on something, you're basically a turncoat. You're giving in on your values, which is silly. We're founded on compromise, but instead we share common ground. Kind of means the same thing, but we're getting away from discussions. So try to get more sources of information. Try to be able to discuss these various issues. Turn in or tune into. All Rise the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray every Friday morning or on demand thereafter and just be a part of this discussion. And if you agree, that's fine. If you disagree, that's even more important. Contact me. We'll discuss it. We can modify our approaches. Uh, I'm trying to learn by listening to other people. And you can do the same thing here on All Rise. We've had amazing guests where we get into these issues. I've been proud to be involved with it and employ our libertarian values of of financial responsibility, live and less live, as we've discussed, as well as just being able to treat each other with respect and with dignity and stop getting into all of these wars. So that is my thought, uh, calming down as I go. I got a little bit silly with you and, and a little bit elsewhere, but tune in again next week and we'll go through another main issue on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Thanks for listening to others and talk to you next Friday again. In the meantime, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Oh